Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Flatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I'm so happy to welcome you to the show today. It's Valentine's Day, and I'm interviewing my Valentine, Sabin Howard, so I'm so happy about it. I'm also really happy and grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to the show live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers, and the chat room is open, so type in and say hello. Please email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at tracy at tracylslatin.com. That's T-R-A-C-I at tracylslatin.com. On February 26th, on a Friday, which is a special day for independent artists and thinkers, at 1 o'clock, Commissioner Edwin Fountain of the World War I Centennial Commission will be on to talk about the World War I Memorial. Very exciting. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. And I'd like to give a special shout-out today to author L.V. Lewis, who advertised the show to her network. So if you haven't read L.V. Lewis, look for her books online. They're really steamy and um, perfect for Valentine's Day and fun reads. So um, shout out to L.V. Lewis, um, a very talented author. So I am so delighted today on Valentine's Day (laughs) to have my Valentine, Sabin Howard, on the show. Sabin Howard grew up in New York City and in Torino, Italy. He studied art at the Philadelphia College of Art and then earned his MFA from the New York Academy of Art. For 20 years, he taught at the graduate and undergraduate levels. He has been elected to the board of the National Sculpture Society. He has received numerous commissions and has showed his work at more than 50 solo and group shows. 
After 45,000 hours of working from life models in the studio, he is the creator of three heroic scale pieces, Hermes, Aphrodite, and Apollo, as well as many smaller pieces. His works are owned by museums and private collectors all over the world, and they have been favorably reviewed by the New York Times, American Artist, Connoisseur, American Arts Collector, and the New, York, and the New Criterion, as well as many other journals internationally. He's the author of the book, The Art of Life, with his wife, author Tracy L. Sutton, and he's currently working on a drawing book called Drawing the Foundation of Art. Sabin Howard, along with architect-in-training Joe Weishauer, was selected as the winning design team for the National World War I Memorial in Pershing Park, Washington, D.C. You can find out more about Sabin at sabinhoward.com. So, Sabin, welcome to the show. Again, thank you for coming on. And happy Valentine's Day to you, too. Thank you, sweetie. So the first thing I want to bring up is some news from your studio. And Sabin, do you want to talk about Fox filming in your studio? And you want to just let my listeners in on that. Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, Friday I started filming for this uh, Fox 5 um, series that's called Modern Masters, which will air in about a month um, nationally. And actually, uh, Wednesday we're flying to Chicago, Joe Weishar and myself to be on the Sunday morning show. Um, and then this Monday, I'm headed back with the film crew at Fox 5 to continue on the Modern Masters series at the Foundry, which is Beacon Fine Art Foundry, to uh, work with one of the people that I've you know, shared my creative process with, uh, Foundry, uh, I'm going to say woman, Insun Kim, who has worked with me for now um, 29 years in casting my sculptures into bronze and her son, um, Christopher Caffarelli. So you're going to be, there'll be a little, like a three to five minute segment on you as a modern master? Yeah, uh, and also my, what my passion is and how this feeds into the World War One Memorial. So I think this is a perfect jumping off point. Can you just talk about the World War One Memorial Design Competition, how you came to enter it with architect um, and training Joe Weishauer, you know, how this all evolved and kind of how the evolution of this and how you guys won. Can you just talk about this from the beginning? So um, last May, I received an email from Justin Schubau, um, Civil Arts Society, um, and he encouraged people in the classical field to enter into the World War I competition for the memorial. I entered with Michael Imber, an internationally known architect out of San Antonio, Texas. We designed something that was extremely classical. However, we did not make it to the um, short list of five, five uh, designs. And I get an email in September from, I didn't know this man, Joe Weishar, urging me to join his team, that, that this would be a collaborative process. And I was immediately intrigued. I called him in two to three hours. And I'm really grateful that he sent me that email because what happened is a design that really got designed differently than the norm. So Joe is 25 years old and had a, a, he's really a visionary in terms of what can be. And so he gave me a lot of free reign. And in that free reign, I was able to design the sculptural aspect of this memorial, which for me is just fabulous because usually when you get such a situation, 
the architect is going to kind of tell you what, what you're supposed to be doing and how big you're supposed to be doing it here. But Joe gave me free reign. So I've, I've, I came up with a design with, with Joe that is a 81-foot-long bronze wall. I named it the Wall of Remembrance. It's a relief panel in low relief. And then um, a three-figure composition in the round. And the figures would be at an eight-foot scale. And that would be in the upper area of the park. So this 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 was what we um, presented in December. And uh, now, actually, after having um, been awarded the commission, we have to go back into the studio and uh, redesign this project to make it fit and reach the next level. Uh, and it's so we're back in process again. So if I understand correctly, this, there was originally a competition because the, a national World War I memorial um, organization, a, commis- a commission was formed to create, to finally create a national World War I memorial. And the commission held a competition and invited um, architects from all over the world uh, to design it. And there were over 360 entries. And then, there, as you said, there was a short list of five of whom Joe was one of them. And then Joe had this idea for a very simple and elegant design that maintained the integrity of the park. And then you came in and started working with him on the sculptural aspect. Is this kind of, do I have this right? Yeah. Um, he gave me a couple ideas and I, I evolved it. I mean, sculpture being my passion and what I think about and basically 24 seven, um, I came up with a relief panel that is very human. Um, it's completely about the relational aspect of figures. And it also talks a lot about like what our potential is as, as human beings and as a race. So here I'm handed this commission to talk about world war one and I have to make some decisions very quickly. Is this about the glorification of war or the glorification of humanity? And I made the choice to create something that talks about what brings us together. And that's the emotional aspect of the psychology of human beings. And there are four key elements that we all share, which are mad, glad, sad, and scared. And within that relief panel that I will come up with now with the uh, communication of and, and ideas that the commission and I will discuss, I'll come up with something that hasn't been done for probably over 130 years. So you haven't seen sculpture at this epic level since probably the late 1800s. And the, the relief panel is supposed to kind of tell the story of World War One and emotionally and intellectually engage visitors. Is that right? Well, yes, because let's, let's, let's backtrack for a second. I'm a visual artist, okay? So concept is important, but the visual or the narrative drives the story. So I have to come up with an idea to tell the story so that when your everyday person who's not in the art world, it's not following art, comes to see this, they're going to walk away with a sense of what World War I was, as well as have a sense of, and this is what I want to bring to the project, a sense of elevated 
spirit or transformation so that you have a visceral reaction to the art by looking at it and also to bring people together because if they see the sense of unity in the emotional aspect of the people in the sculpture, of the figures within the sculpture, that's going to transfer to the viewer. Well, I know, because I was here with you, that you did a tremendous amount of research um, as you were working with Joe Weishauer, and the two of you took feedback. Um, I think you met once or twice with the commission to get their feedback as you evolved the design that ultimately won. Um, you did a tremendous amount of research into World War One, and it was an incredibly far-reaching war. Um, so how do you convey kind of that, the breadth and depth of this war and how much it meant to the global society? There are visual cues that will place the work, obviously, in that time period. So uniforms and then the machinery of war, the animals that were there, the horses, and then the naturalistic component, which is the vegetation. So these are all parts of the whole that go forward, that will be put into the story. And I have to come up with a creative way of explaining this to basically a non-artistic audience. And then also what's nice about, I mean, as I understand it, there are two relief walls and a sculpture in the round. Is that correct? Just It's just one relief. It's a long panel. Oh, okay. And then there's also a sculpture in the round? And I think all of the reliefs will change and also the sculpture in the round, but what was your initial idea for the sculpture in the round? Well, the initial idea um, will change, and I had the idea of the sculpture in the round being the active principle, so there would be three figures around a cannon, but at this point, we're probably going to move that towards the wall and make the wall more active, dramatic, and Baroque in its style, and we'll make the figure, figures in the round more contemplative. Um, and I think that's fitting to the park area because the upper area of the park, which is elevated, will be a more peaceful area where people can hang out and enjoy their lunch. And a sculpture that is contemplative is going to fit the mood better. Whereas when you come to the relief, and and it's a long wall, you really want to grab people's attention and 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 leave them more with story or a narrative that's given by the visuals. What are some of your inspirations for this relief wall? And it'll be in bronze, right? So people will be able to touch it? Yes, it will be in bronze. Um, well, as I said to the commission last week, what we're doing here is we're taking the frieze from the Parthenon, which was 65 feet up in the air, and we're bringing that down and making it accessible to the general public. We're putting it at ground level so that they can reach out and they can touch these figures on the relief panel. So the, there's a lot of lot of stuff behind this idea artistically. It's about making art accessible, but it's also still creating an art that is about elevated spirit or higher consciousness. Well, how do you find higher consciousness in war? The Great War was devastating. Millions and millions of people across the world um, died and you know, I've done a lot of research into World War II for my novels, and I really believe that World War II started with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, that it was it just boxed in Germany to such an extent that there was uh, 
almost an inevitability about World War II after that that treaty was signed. Um, So how do you find what's elevated about this war that led to so many tragedies? So going back to just some art, art ideas, the human figure in how it's portrayed through the gesture, the unique gesture of each person, and the way those individuals relate as a whole, and then the morphology or the body type of each of those soldiers, that's how it will be done. It'll, it, I'm telling a story about human beings. And so the way that I sculpt things and design them, and specifically how I think about the figure architecturally and also as an organic spiral, that's the thing that I will bring to this piece. So it's the way that I sculpt that will give a sense of elevated spirit. And I think also just from um, hearing you talk about it, there was a lot you were talking about about the brotherhood of soldiers in the trenches. Yeah, there's a vision of the figure that is not modern per se. A modern figure is more alienated and separated and you don't have such a sense that he belongs to something bigger than themselves. So in this, there will be groupings of soldiers that are intertwined and engaged with each other, and so there will not be a single figure that falls through um, this net of interactive unity. And this was really, um, it was comprehensive. People of all kinds um, all races, both genders, you know, were involved in this war. Yeah, we're not, that's a, a good point that you're making because we're not we're we're at the beginning of a design process. Okay, so the design process that I did to win this shows what I'm capable of as an artist. Now I move into another stage, and I have to work with with a, com- a commission, and basically a client, and I have to I have to think about something way outside of myself. I'm serving here. I'm serving many different groups. First of all, I'm serving a country. I'm serving Washington. I'm serving the commission. I'm serving these these groups that that are involved historically in the preservation of the history of World War I. So I, I feel like I'm a really fitting artist because I bring my 30 years of experience to the table and I have also an open heart in that I will use my ability to create something at the highest level possible to 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 serve. And so it's not art done in the studio alone for myself and you know a, a unique client. I'm serving millions of clients here. Thank you. That's a that's a wonderful answer. What do you ultimately when it's all done? Say it's you know, I've waved a magic wand and we're 10 years from now and it's the, it's all done in Washington, in Pershing Park. What is ultimately your goal for that memorial, you as the artist? All right, so I'm a visual artist. The first picture that comes to me is when Michelangelo finished the Sistine Chapel and the public was allowed to come in and see it. I wish to create that same sense of awesomeness in art that the everyday average person can come to memorials and say, oh my God, that's real art. That's what my goal is, to create something that I can 
I can reach everybody on all different levels of society in a way that's positive. Thank you. I know um, on the last day when they were announcing who won, there were proceedings that the commission was going through, and there was a call-in number for the public to listen in. And I heard one of the commission members, um, who's the only person who voted against uh, Weishauer, Howard team, saying that he was underwhelmed by the design. How would you answer that? Let's have that conversation in a few years, please. <laughs> That's a tactful answer. Um, so I know one of the other important pieces in this whole process is keeping the park as a park. And that was one of the the amazing things about Joe's design, that Joe Weishauer, this wonder kind who's a visionary, you know, was able to keep the park as a park so that it could still be enjoyed as a park. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, um, Joe and I had several conversations around this. Um, I really enjoy working with Joe through this process because there was always a give and take, a back and forth. And I offered to him, well, this park's about community. It's about, let's go look at the model, the traditional model. Um, and And I went back to Europe and I thought about the piazza system, the square, the town square. So here... Joe, thought, Joe said, that's a great idea. It's, we're making an urban space that can encourage the community to get together and be in a space that's going to also encourage a sense of well-being so, and, and upliftment. So all in all, between the artistic element, the architectural element, we're trying to create, and I'm not, let's not say we're trying because we will, we will succeed. We are creating a space that actually will serve the community and the visitors and the country. Then the trees are preserved. I just have to bring that up because you know how I feel about trees. Yes, that's right. The trees will be preserved. Okay. <laughs> so thank you. So um, so what are the next steps for the memorial, and how can people get involved with the World War One Memorial? Well, at this moment, um, we're meeting again at the 24th and 25th as a, as a group, group commission and the fundraising has begun and um the the website to go see the design is www.cc.org/design so uh the big the big issue right now is let's come up with the funds to make this happen i'm sure this is going to happen very quickly and the the next step after that will be the the actual redesigning of this and uh, then we will move into construction. I know it's a little complicated, um, and Commissioner um, Edwin Fountain will be on in a few weeks to talk about this, but getting people excited about a war of whom no one is left. I mean, there's no one left from that war, so how do we get people excited about it? Well, it's 100 years after, so the centennial is uh, uh, this moment will commemorate and so i think there's a a a moment a moment to grab here it's an opportunity and i think edwin said it best just the very fact that there is not a world war one memorial in washington is the reason that there should be one it should be it should become something that people are aware of so thank you so i want to move now um to a little bit more kind of about your own uh, about you and your work, 
Uh, and before we talk about your process for making art, do you want to tell, tell my listeners about your webinars and the workshop in Philadelphia and Fondazione? Uh, well, it, along with this memorial, I really began to see that it's very important to pass along these skills that I've learned. I think it's really unique in some ways um, what I have to offer because it's not something that you can get in a regular art college or art school. So as you, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, there have been many ateliers or art uh, mini schools that are run by professional artists that have sprung up to fill the gap. And this is a really exciting moment historically because the tides are turning. Just the very fact that a figurative sculptural classical project was selected for this memorial speaks kudos for what is happening in the un- it's, it's not in the mainstream but as Tracy's show talks about it's happening uh, with the independent artists and thinkers outside of the mainstream and it's a it's a real threat to the art world well i just want to interject here um that it from what uh, from talking to you and artists I've met through the years, it seems like the big art schools are focusing more on kind of digital work, digital skills, and abstract art, and that there's a there's been a kind of a loss of the figure and a loss of realism that these ateliers are addressing. Yeah, it's it's ex- that's exactly right, um, and you have um, this return to an art that is. Uh, I, it's not only craft oriented, but it, it's it's about the visual aspect of it, and most of it's figurative. And I, so I decided to become involved in this as well, and I began doing webinars. And these webinars re- have been running weekly since June of last year, and the outreach is global. So I'm reaching into countries that. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia. I'm, I have several students from Saudi Arabia, all over Europe, Canada, some from China, uh, and it's just it's very far-reaching. And the fascinating here thing here for me is, okay, now I'm going to do a workshop on the 21st in Philly, and people are traveling um, to come to this. So it's it's an exciting way to to work at a grassroots level. But at the same time, here I am doing something that is not so grassroots with the World War One memorial, and so I offer myself for these these classes and webinars. And I, I, you, if you sign up, you can actually call in and talk with me. I give you private instruction as well over Skype, and I think it's it's a it's a really fascinating way to start something one by one, brick by brick, from the from the ground up. Well, I know from having spoken with you over the years that you had this great awakening when you studied with Martha Erlbacher and her husband, Walter Erlbacher, and they, Walter had been kind of a darling of the abstract expressionist movement in Germany. And then when he began to do the figure and he actually kind of rediscovered or reinvented a Renaissance system of um, of seeing the figure, he was sort of cast out, but you felt that you really benefited from his passion for the figure and for this Renaissance skill set that he had had to kind of recreate and that you're interested in passing this on. Yes, very very much so. Um, I started art at 19 
um, with with no training, uh, just an idea. And the idea was I wanted to recreate a figurative art that matched the level that you had in Renaissance Italy and um, Greece and Rome prior to that. So I, I landed in Philadelphia and I had the Erlbachers and Tony Visco as my teachers. And from those those sources, it was the beginning of a structure or a way of working that has led me to this point. And I, and I'd like to mention here there because there's a great correlation between um, winning this memorial and also this the information that I've learned over the last thirty years of working with models in the studio. And, and that is, it's, I think there's something terribly awry here in the art world that the artist is not seen as a master of, of a vision or of, of a truth. He's seen more in the, in globally in the art world as the court jester who talks about things that are witty of the moment. And the World War I memorial for myself is it talks about something that is timeless and it will be about creating art that is sacred. And in it, it, I feel it's my job as an artist to bring back the idea that art is something of tremendous value that represents a cultural, a culture and the culture, how, how does it want to be represented? And that's, that's really, these are some of the questions that go through my mind on a daily basis. Well, actually, when you talk about what's awry in the art world, and you earlier you were talking about modern art seeing the figure as um, alienated and isolated, and you're talking about now how the artist is seen as a court jester commenting wittily on what's of the moment, and that this is a kind of betrayal of what art can be and the breadth and scope of true art. Um, and I'm going to trace this back to World War One for you, because I think that this alienation and isolation and this kind of nihilism goes back to World War II, the time between the wars, and ultimately back to World War I because there was this massive psychic devastation when an entire generation of young men were just killed, the best and the brightest. That If you read the journals, if you read the novels of World War I, what you find was the best and the brightest young men in every village died. There was an entire generation of young men wiped off of the planet basically and it was psychically devastating and i think it became hard for people to believe in a good god a god in the sky with a beard looking down handing out grace when um because of that and then the signing of the treaty of versailles which germany began to call the versailles diktat which led to the rise of the nazis which led to the holocaust of the jews and all the you know, the murder and death around World War II, it sort of increased the devast psychic devastation and nihilism, the fact that people could no longer believe in saving grace of God. And I think this, the outpour, the, you know, this became this kind of nihilism that I think still permeates our culture and that has displaced art from a sacred function. I don't know, do you, this is a theory I have. Do you agree? What are your comments? I think that we're at the, the next wave and every period in art is a reaction to the preceding period of art. And so the things that I learned from Walter and Martha Erlbacher and Tony Visco were about how to create the figure using sacred geometry. And those those ideas about proportions that came out of Leonardo da Vinci and Renaissance Italy 
all of a sudden now are they, they count again because you have this return, but it returns in a different way to explain the moment that I live in historically here in contemporary New York City. So doing figures today, it, 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 using these same principles about how the universe is assembled, it's not like I'm being archaeological. Rather, I'm taking a form or a way of constructing the figure, and I'm applying the ideas that are relevant to our culture at this very moment to create modern or contemporary art. That's interesting. So art is a reaction not just to the art that preceded it, but also to the context of the time in which the artist lives. Yeah, so we have 100 years plus uh, in distance of time from World War One, so we can look at it differently. And so uh, we're not in it right now. This is There's 100 years of history that has passed. So the horrors of it are, they're not as acute, acute. Okay, it, they're not as. They're, we're, we're, there's a distance between that pain of your your father or your grandparents being dead, or the the maimed victims. That's that's not part of what is in the human psyche today or the mind. What's there is that this was something that changed the history and the destiny of mankind a hundred years ago, and so how do you show this? in a way that gives it the importance that it that it has historically. And that's where I come in, because my art explains things from the point of view of, of sacredness. So the use of my proportional head system or the spirals of the way the forms are constructed or the framework of the skeleton and how that's the architecture of the figure give this a, a, a whole different meaning than just a single artist doing his thing. It's no, I'm explaining a historical significant moment in a way that makes us understand it from a much greater point of view, a universal point of view. That's, that's amazing. Thank you. That's a wonderful explanation. So do you want to talk about, well, the two things, one about your artistic process, but the other thing I was thinking is um, there are two of your skill sets that are being drawn on in this um, World War I memorial, and you're famous as a sculptor, and what people are starting to realize is that you're a rather extraordinary draftsman also. So how do drawing and sculpting interrelate, and how did you become such a master of both of them? <laughs> well, I like to th think that drawing is um, the beginner's approach to art, and that Sculpture is drawing on steroids, so because it's three-dimensional drawing, it's drawing in the round. And so a lost and forgotten art form that's now being brought back to life. And um, I think that drawing is the foundation of all art. It's the way that you use the, your mind as an artist to translate from the real world into the art world. And so it's not... Um, for myself, a copying or a rendering, it's a translation. And the translation is done through the way that my eyes see things and my mind filters and you know, processes what I'm, what I'm looking at and organizes it onto a page. 
you're always very clear when you and I talk that your drawing is abstract. Yeah, the, um, there. I mean, just on, on the most basic level, when you start drawing, there there are two things. I always mention this: their angle and distance. So drawing is about spatial relationships between points, points in space. What's the distance between them? And then the other element is that the body is broken up into geometric solids like cubes or ovoids or cones. And so then these shapes are more than just, you know, just shapes. No, they're they're a way of translating things into abstract terms and then the idea of light and how light when it hits three-dimensional form creates the sense of luminosity and so as an artist you there are all these different ways of perceiving so you might think oh Saban Howard's work looks very realistic but in my I guess studio practice what I'm doing is I'm translating I'm translating perceptive using my perception to create a, a whole different thing than what's there and I love repeating this idea that Picasso came up with that the artist to tell the truth must tell a lie so my lie is to dwell into the way the universe is assembled and that's where I go back and really I'm fascinated by Leonardo by how he assembled things in his notebooks and I take a lot of those those things that I see in his drawings, and I've, I, I've, I've studied them for over 30 years, and not just looking at his books, but looking at models. And then how do I use that way of looking at models to create something of such elegance and grace and power? This is a moment I want to ask you about beauty and the role of beauty and aesthetics in art. And one of the things I want to say is, you know, Justin Shubo of the National Civic Arts Organization over dinner said to us that um, he said that Frank Gehry has admitted that he doesn't know what is beautiful. And, you know, I have a very bad opinion of Gehry because he treated you badly and his Eisenhower memorial designs are, are absolutely ugly and atrociously awful and do nothing except aggrandize his own ego. Um, but this goes back to the fact that they're truly ugly designs. So what is the role of beauty in art and what is the role of beauty in art now as we start to move to start, hopefully, to start to move away from the nihilism and ugliness that, you know, thoroughly informed the art world for so long and was considered hip and chic? Well, I just maybe want to clarify what the word beauty me might mean in the artistic context. So it, it's not the saccharine type of cute-looking sunset or the, you know, the nice looking cat on on the ta on the table that's it or the horse that's not the thing that we're talking about in terms of beauty we're talking here more about a proportional system and that proportions imp imply that there's a scale to the parts within the whole and that also implies that there's a hierarchy of part the importance of each of the parts within that whole so when you look at a body and you break it down into specific parts and then those parts flow together with the correct importance each you're mimicking the way that the world and the universe is assembled because the proportions that we have as human beings is 
similar to the proportions that you see within nature with and what architects have done those same proportions have been used within architecture so these are mathematical ratios of how things are assembled now i'm not saying that i go into my art and i'm i'm taking out a compass a compass and i'm measuring how big something is in relation to something else no it's more because of all the time that i've spent in the studio I have to interrupt because your spatial sense is genius, though. I mean, you can you can tell me usually to a quarter of an inch how big something is, and I've seen you parallel park a car in a space that I thought was too small, and you'd say, no, I have an inch on each side, and you would whip the car into the space, and there's an inch in, inside. So, you know, you seem to have a built-in compass. That's the experience of being in the studio for all these years. So that's these this proportional scale and how big each part is to the whole to create a sense of unity is that's what I see as beauty. So you're talking about proportions and parts to the whole. And I'm just going back to these god awful, atrociously ugly, despicable curtains, woven curtains that Gary's trying to do. Does he create something like that because he doesn't understand proportions? Is that why he doesn't understand beauty? I mean I'm theorizing. I just I don't want to be critical at this moment. It's just I don't I don't feel like it's correct on my part, but it's it, we're we deviate from the way things should be put together. I think that Gary is a master in his own right, and I don't want to like talk about him because that's his business what he does. So I'm really more interested in just proceeding and creating something that will elevate the human spirit, and that that's. I'm just going to repeat that. That's the most important thing to me, to to leave the viewer when he looks at my art with a sense of just wowness of how awesome it is, and it's that's you transcend the everyday, the boring, the mundane, and you elevate people. That's that's what I'm after. Um, I understand and. I'll, I'll drop the subject. I just want to say that the problem is that the Eisenhower Memorial belongs to everyone, and it is it is everyone's business because it's just going to be a blot of ugliness in Washington D.C. and it's a it's a travesty that it's there. So, anyways, going back to you and your art, you know, can you talk about your process for making art? How do you start a piece? How do you finish? When do you know it's done? Well, a lot of it comes from um, an initial idea, which is visual. So the visual drives the concept. It's not the opposite for me. It's like something excites me visually, and then that drives the concept, and I learn more about what the story is by looking at it. So um, talk about how you did the Apollo. Well, the Apollo was a project that took 11 years, and it was a culmination of the standing male nude and I started um, way back in 99 and I actually it's if you really want to look at it um, perspectively it's 15 years of and I, I saw it as um, a, a huge learning curve where I began to realize um, how do how do I want to show um, the figure what's what's my vision as an artist and I always see there's a three-step theory that I have in terms of the artistic learning curve. And the first one is learning the craft or the nuts and bolts of how to put a figure together, which is followed by 
emulating the masters that you really are attracted to. And then thirdly, the last stage is where the own, your, your psychological or your individual story begins to be told, and that's the vision of the artist. And that's the more mature aspect of um, the artistic, uh, I guess, professional process. And Apollo was the culmination of uh, almost 15 years of work where I began with closed energy systems in the figure, which are these seated poses, and transformed and moved that towards a figure that was soaring and elevated. And it, it happened through how I positioned the body parts in relation to the light. And a lot of it is very abstract. but In terms of abstract, talk about convexity. Well, as a sculptor, everything that you see passes through your mind. So if your mind is looking at the world, and specifically the model as being made up of a series of forms that press out into space, convex versus concave, if everything is constructed like that in clay, where everything is pressing out into space, the idea will be transmitted to the viewer when he looks at that sculpture, and he'll see that sculpture as being expansive because there's a sense of expansion in the form. It was built that way. So it's transferred to the person looking at it. And they, it, I always make this analogy of a raisin and a grape. A grape is alive with an energy that's pushing out. A raisin is not really alive. It's dead. It's shriveled. The energy has been pulled out of it, and it's fallen in on itself. It's concave. It's the same as when a, a human being dies. When they're alive, their forms are all pushing outwards. There's this blood pressure that pumps the blood through the body, and the figure has a sense of fullness, especially as we're younger. As we move towards death, the figure becomes closer and closer in form to concavity. And when that moment of dying and the energy leaves the body, all the forms collapse on themselves. And so as a sculptor, I'm after creating a sense of life, of energy bursting forth from flesh and blood. And so when I sculpt in the studio, I'm thinking about that in terms of how do I construct and break this down into a system that gives a sense of life-bursting energy. You also, when you, in your drawing classes, you tell your students to think, you know, convexity also. Yeah, it's, it, perception drives reality. It's not only in art, but in the world. So the perception is that if you're looking at the model and you're diagramming each of the parts of that body, meaning diagramming, you're drawing the border of the form, and then you're building to the high point of each of those unique forms on the human body, and then each of those high points is in the right spot within the whole, you're going to create something really magnificent. That's cool. Well, I think you started your early figures um, remind me of the Ignudi in the Sistine Chapel, and they are sort of more curved in beam shape. But then as you went through your career, they started to unfurl, and then you come to the Apollo, and he's got this up-tilted sternum. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, just to, not to deviate, but it's like this is a stuff – I got a great foundation in education. And so I was able to then f go into the lab, you go in the studio, and you can figure things out. You can problem solve. 
and it's you you know how to proceed because frustration never leaves there's never a sense of like oh yes i hit it it's always a sense of like it could be a little better it could be a little better there's a humbleness to learning so this whole idea that you know we can all be spontaneous and be inspired it's it's sure it's great um if you're an amateur but if you're a professional you know you have to work within a structure and that's where you actually are released to be creative and have that freedom of expression. So spending that time in the studio was really imperative for me to learn a vocabulary of how to put the body together. And I really would like to bring back some sort of system that students could learn how to put the figure together with a similar way of understanding it. Well, what would be your advice to young artists or, you know, young kids or even people in the middle of their life who say, I've always wanted to be an artist, I want to be, I'm going to start learning now. What would you tell them? What's your advice to artists at the beginning of their journey as an artist? The advice is to find the artist of that, that you admire, the artist that carries the ability to pull off the art that you wish that you could create. And that goes into the emulate your master's idea. So going to an art school might not be the best way to go unless you wish to be a teacher because the degree is not going to really help you out that much. The, the best thing you can do for yourself is perhaps find an atelier that is it can give you the structure that you need to learn how to make your art. And um, besides looking, finding the artists that they respond to, what else would you tell artists who are on this journey what else would you tell them to do being an artist is maybe one of the hardest things that you can do so you have to be able to take the daily grind of just continuing to follow your passion or your path so you need to make yourself really strong mentally so you need to take care of other parts of yourself not only your craft that enable you to continue on a daily basis through the travails that will present themselves and to keep your eye on where you want to be. Okay, And so even no matter what the level that you're at, there will be issues and problems that you'll have to deal with. So I'm saying you need to work on other parts of yourself besides your craft. Now, with that being said, craft or what you do, what the art that you make, is always the most important part of the formula. Everything will follow that, because if your art is not worthy of creating a sense of amazement within the viewer, then you won't go very far. So you need to take care of that part first. And where do you see your art going in for the next 5, 10, 20 years? Well... I'm moving into public works because I need to be in the arena. And that means I needed to be seen by more than just my collectors, by people that are necessarily involved in art. And I need to make a statement here that changes the direction that the art world is moving in. What's your goal for the art world? Well, that's that's a tough one. I, I don't run that that system, but I do have criticism of what's going on here because you, I like to use what Peter Trippi, the, con, the fine art connoisseur editor, says. There's a toxic art market 
where there are 60 to 70 artists that are in specific galleries that drive this market forward. And these are the gatekeepers. So they don't allow anything else into that world. Because if you do get into that world, you're going to pull it down. So I'm implying certain things by saying this. Yeah, the toxic art market world is kind of the corrupt um, old, I'm going to call them old boys network, but women are involved too, of the same, you know, 50, 60 artists who are in museum shows are the same 50, 60 artists who are being shown at the top galleries. And the top galleries are sponsoring museum shows because it's expensive to foist a show. And so therefore there is no separation between the museum and the market. And that is to the detriment of all of humanity because there are a lot of wonderful, amazing artists who are not in those galleries. And so this corrupt system is really depressing art as a field, even though it does mean if someone buys a painting at such and such a gallery, Gagosian or Forum Gallery, they know it's a good investment because such and such a museum shows that painter in their walls. And that's for that very reason. That's why I applied for the World War One Memorial, because I didn't want to get involved in that market anymore. So I'm working outside the market to make a change. And being able to be in the public sphere and these public memorials will give you an opportunity to put your art in front of large groups of people. Yeah, and 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 I will serve, I, I'll continue to say that word, I will serve community, and on this, in this point, country, and something way larger than myself. And I truly believe it's extremely important to belong to something bigger than yourself, okay? Not, o- not only in how you see your existence as a human being, but also what you do in a daily basis. I can have a greater impact than the circle that I have right now through doing a project that serves community than I've, I've actually done something of great value and importance. It goes beyond me. And what are some of your upcoming events, Sabin? And can you just tell people again how they can find you, tell the listeners? Well, some of my upcoming events would be taking my wife out for a glass of champagne to celebrate her today, <laughs> followed by putting my making dinner for a family and then putting my daughter to bed tonight. Um, <laughs> so I'm very grateful for, for you, and thank you for having me on today. And um, upcoming events publicly will be more of the same, of just getting this project done, done correctly and perhaps engaging more people to learn how to do this art and helping others see what what where what they can do with their own artistic talents by giving them a knowledge that perhaps is rare today I know you're incredibly accessible to people because I see you answering emails and phone calls all the time you want to tell my listeners how they can reach you if they want to ask you questions Well yeah if you want to do you have questions you want to take these webinars just and uh, you need w- help with your own work, you can reach me. Um, just go into sabinhower.com, and there is an email address there. And uh, that's, you know, you'll, you can find it on the website. And really, right now, it's like I'm, I will be putting my head down and proceeding with these drawings and eventual, eventually sculpture that will change the direction that art history is moving in. 
And what's a fun fact people might not know about you besides I'm going to tell everyone that you're an amazing cook, and I'm looking forward to that glass of champagne. So what's what are some fun facts that listeners might not know about you? Fun facts. Okay, fun facts. I have two dogs, and I have to walk them regularly. <laughs> That's not fun. Tell us about the music you listen to. <laughs> oh, fun facts. All right. I have a eclectic music collection that varies from Led Zeppelin to... <laughs> Classical Mozart on the other end of the spectrum. Um, I'm just fascinated also by music as well because music is very much about rhythm, and those rhythms that I hear in music are found within art as well. Different formats, same ideas. Well, thank you so much, is there? I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for talking about everything. And is, are there any last words for listeners you'd like to offer? Yeah, uh, I really look forward to sharing this process as I proceed with it. Um, And please feel free to reach out if you want to get in touch with me. Thanks so much. Thanks, sweetie. Thanks for being on the show. So to all my listeners, I hope you'll go to the World War I Memorial website and take a look at the design and take a look at, you know, this incredibly worthy um, intention that the World War I Memorial Commission has you know, to memorialize this war and kind of bring it back into our national consciousness because it was a huge, epic, historical event. And please tune in um, on the 26th at 1 o'clock, Friday the 26th, when Commissioner Edwin Fountain of the World War I Centennial Commission will be on. So thanks for tuning in and, um, and tune in on the 26th. Take care. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.